good and appropriate song service, I think, for the uh, passage of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight. Acts chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me tonight. <clears throat> After preaching this morning, an hour's worth of acquired practice, um, we'll see how much uh, voice we have left tonight. Um, but I enjoyed um, reading and uh, studying and, and learning a little bit about the book of Acts chapter 18. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really, I told my wife, I'm um, really kind of excited about maybe one, one day getting an opportunity uh, to preach this message to church planters. Um, I can just see so much application uh, of this. Of course, the Apostle Paul was a church planter. And uh, so there's just a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff here that I think is, is very applicable uh, to church planters. And with the Lord's help, I want to I preach to you tonight under this title, Down But Not Out. Down But Not Out. And this is going to be kind of a, a silly question tonight, somewhat rhetorical, I, I know. But I'm going to ask it anyway. How many of you here tonight have ever, by show of hands, how many of you here tonight have ever been discouraged? All right, that's what I thought. How many of you have ever felt like quitting? All right. How many of you have discovered that just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it does? Yeah? Welcome to the life of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 18 and verse 1 begins like this. After these things. And we're going to stop right there and, and talk a little bit about those three words. After these things. Because it points to something that has already taken place in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. By the time, let, let, me, let me just go on here for a minute. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. But after these things, by the time Paul got to Corinth, he had really had a, a pretty rough time. If you remember just a few chapters ago, he had been run out of the city of Thessalonica. People got angry at him for preaching the gospel. They got angry because people were coming to know the Lord, and, and they rose up against Paul, and they ran him out of town. And so the next place we find Paul setting up camp and, and establishing ministry was in a, a town called Berea. And if you remember the Bible said that the folks there at Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And Paul met a group of people in Berea that were hungry for the truth and were anxious to receive the Word of God. But he wasn't there very long before that same group that stirred things up in Thessalonica made their way to Berea. And they began stirring things up in the city of Berea, uh, so much that, uh, that the people rose up against Paul again. And if it were not for the help uh, of some of the brethren there in Berea, 
Paul would have suffered great physical harm. But they came to his rescue and they got him out of the city uh, before any harm could come to him. And when he left Berea, he went Thessalonica, run out of town. Berea, run out of town. And so in Acts chapter 17, he comes to the city of Athens. The Bible says that Paul was stirred up. When others would go to the city of Athens, they would behold uh, the beauty and, and the majesty and the, uh, the significance and uh, the, the monuments there and, and, and all of the, the, the splendor. Uh, it was just an eye-catching place to be. But yet when Paul stepped foot in the, the city of Athens, he began to look around and the, the Bible says that he got stirred up and And when we preached about that, we explained that that meant that he got angry. He got fired up as he saw a city awash in intellectualism and idolatry. You see, in Athens, nobody needed Jesus. Nobody needed the gospel. Nobody needed God because they had their own God. As a matter of fact, they had 30,000 plus gods. And as Paul strolled around the city of Athens, he just beheld God after God, statue erected to this God and that God and another God. And it was so bad that they even had a statue erected to the unknown God in case they had missed one out of 30,000 gods. Just in case there's one that we missed, we'll just title this one the unknown one, the one that we may have missed. If you remember there just a couple of weeks ago, we preached from Acts 17 and and the sermon that Paul preached there (coughs) in Athens. And as Paul approached the intellectuals there, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they called him a babbler. The word babbler literally meant seed picker. And the picture is that of a a chicken as it makes its way around the barnyard and pecking a little here and pecking a little there and pecking a little something here and pecking a little something there and pecking a little something over here. And they just walk around and they're just picking up little bits and pieces all over the barnyard. And when they called Paul a babbler, here's what they were saying. They were saying that that he was some kind of, of amateur philosopher who had picked a little bit up here and picked a little bit up there and picked a little bit up somewhere else. And the Bible says they begin to mock him. They begin to make fun of him. And Paul preached a magnificent sermon. And he explained to the the folks there at Athens who the unknown God really was. Great sermon. And then when it was all said and done, the end of Acts chapter 17 says that some of the people mocked him and made fun of him. Others said, yeah, we'll, we'll give it some thought. We'll, we'll, we'll give you some time. We'll listen to you again. And then right there at the close of verse 34, how be it certain men clave unto him and believed. 
And so thank God there were some who believed. And so it's after these things, after being run out of Thessalonica and being run out of Berea and being mocked and ridiculed and made fun of at Athens, after these things, Paul came to Corinth. And so he's now gone from a city awash in intellectualism and idolatry to a city that is drowning in immorality. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. Corinth was about 50 miles from Athens. Corinth was a wicked, wicked place. Just as you don't know many men whose parents named them Judas, and you know, there are some, but there are not many women whose parents named them Jezebel. There aren't many churches that are named the Corinth Baptist Church. And there's a reason for that. It was a mess. And the city of Corinth was a wicked, wicked place. Towering some 1,500 feet above Corinth was the Acropolis, and on top of, of the Acropolis was the, <coughs> excuse me, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. According to the New International Biblical Commentary, each evening, the temple's 1,000, get that, the temple's 1,000 priestesses who were ritual prostitutes, would descend into the city to ply their trade. In modern terms, we'd say they got their church on. You wouldn't think, oh, is that church? Yeah, it was for them. That was their religion. They were priestesses who served as prostitutes. It says, in sharp contrast to the sedate, by comparison, the sedate intellectual and cultural center of Athens, Corinth was undeniably a rip-roaring town where none but the tough could survive. So Paul steps out of Athens, a very learned city, a very intellectual city, uh, a very sophisticated city. And, and refined city. And he steps into the Las Vegas of the New Testament. A city that was drowning in immorality. And so this is what Paul faced, which accounts, and this, if, if you miss this part, you're really not going to appreciate First Corinthians, first, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 18. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't get this, you're not going to appreciate the rest of the message tonight. I think this is key in understanding what, what God said later to Paul in the book of Acts chapter 18. 
Again, he's been run out of Thessalonica. He's been run out of Berea. He's been mocked and made fun of by the intellectuals in Athens. And so he leaves there, and now he steps into a city where 1,000 prostitute priestesses come down into the city every night and prostitute and ply their trade, as it said. And so here's Paul, and he steps into the city of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this, in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you, look at it, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was very transparent here with the Corinthians when he said to them, referring back to the time that we're reading about right now in Acts chapter 18, Paul said, when I came to you, when I first stepped foot in the city of Corinth, I was weak and I was fearful and I was trembling. I think it's safe to say tonight that Paul was at a very low point in his life. He said, I was weak. He was exhausted physically because he could no longer, he no longer had any resources. Paul had to resort to becoming a bivocational church planner in order to make ends meet. And we'll read about this in a moment. But he plied his trade as a leather worker, as a tent maker. Not, un, listen, not unlike many church planners uh, in America today. They go into a city and, and, and they don't have enough resources to, to make it without uh, working. And so they'll, they'll work, some of them, 40, 50 hours a week and try to plant a church uh, during the other time, whatever spare time they have. And they've got to raise their family and they've got to provide for their family. And, and they've got to try to raise up a church. That's physically taxing. And Paul said, when I came to you, he said, I came to you and I was, I was weak. And Paul was making tents during the week and he was ministering in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Again, not unlike many church planters today. Now, how many of you understand tonight that our physical condition has a lot to do with our emotional and spiritual condition. You understand that tonight. The next time you find yourself down emotionally, or you find yourself down or off track spiritually, one of the first things that you need to do is evaluate whether or not you're getting enough rest. Whether you're eating right, whether you're getting sufficient exercise, because our physical health will impact our emotional and spiritual health. Paul was burning the candle at both ends, as they say. And he was honest. And he said, it was, it was starting to take a toll on me physically. I was weak. But he was not only weak, he was fearful. 
Speaking from purely a, a ministry standpoint, he may have failed, and, and I'm just assuming here and, and, and uh, taking a little liberty here, I understand this tonight, but perhaps from just a ministry standpoint, he may have felt as, as though he, he failed somewhat in Athens, only having reached a, a small minority of its population. And let me just tell you something about pastors tonight. We can be that way. We can. When we don't see the tangible results that we think we ought to see, I'm just being honest with you tonight, that, that can get in our head. And it can start playing, playing games with, uh, with our mind, and, and we can become somewhat concerned ourselves. Well, maybe God's through with me here, or maybe I need to just move on, or maybe the church has just gotten too used to my voice, or, or, or maybe nobody cares anymore, or, or maybe God's written Ichabod over the door of the church. And I'm just being honest with you tonight. Sometimes when we don't see the results that we think we ought to see, that starts to work on us. We're human, amen. Paul was one man among many, many thousands. I, I, I tried to find the population of, of Corinth, but it was uh, anywhere from 50,000 to 700,000. So you just pick a number in between there and go with it. But even at that, it was many, many thousands of men. And Paul was just one man among those men who, according to one writer, <clears throat> this wasn't true of Paul, but it was true of the men of Corinth, they worshipped the almighty dollar, drank deep of the fountain of pleasure, rocked in the chair of luxury, wallowed in the mire of vice, and lived for, the, for things seen and temporal. And he was supposed to make a difference. He was supposed to turn that city upside down for Jesus. As he stood in Corinth, I believe from what he wrote to the church at Corinth, I, I, I believe he was overwhelmed. I do. I believe he was overwhelmed. Dejected and defeated on the battlefield of his own heart. Now, I say all of that tonight to say this. There are no doubt those among us tonight who at some point have felt the same way as Paul. And the truth is, there may be some here tonight who maybe not from a ministerial viewpoint, but from wherever it is that you view life right now as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a child, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a, a, a worker, as whatever. From wherever it is that you, you view life tonight, there, there may have been times not in the too distant past where you just felt like chunking it all. And if you've been there tonight, or if you are there tonight, I want to show you four things that God did for Paul that he can do for us when we face 
those difficult times. Here's the first one. Write it down. God gives us partners to support us. Look at verse 2. He come into, he's coming to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. Lately, most recently, it said he was living in Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because that Claudia had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Hey, thank God tonight for those special people that he puts in our lives when we seem to need them the most. He's here tonight, and it seems like every time he's here, I, I pick on him. I'm really not picking on him. It's just the way that God has worked things out for us a number of years ago. You know the story of how the Marlon Meisenheimer came to know the Lord and how I prayed with him there in his parking lot. Last Tuesday night, we got the call that our oldest son had died. And we got everything together as quick as we could. And we're getting ready to take out on Wednesday morning and head to be with our daughter-in-law and our three granddaughters. And I was filling my Tahoe up when, lo and behold, right there in the parking lot of Hutch's, there was Marlon Meisner. I said, dude, we got to quit meeting like this. We just sat there and hugged and cried and slobbered over each other right there in front of God and everybody at Hutch's convenience store. Do you know what? God knew I needed somebody right then. And I'm just telling you tonight, thank God for those times when he knows just when we need somebody and he knows just when to send them our way. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, and I, listen, I don't, I want to get over this, and I want to get beyond this, and I don't want to bring this up every service. But let me just say it again tonight, that so many of you have been there for us this week, and, and I just cannot thank you enough for that. It's overwhelming to us. TJ's death did not surprise God. It didn't catch God off guard. We look at things now and how things have, have come about, and, 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 and it, it, God knew what was coming. And he started putting some things in place, and he started putting some people in place that he knew we were going to need in, in the darkest days of our lives. I'm talking about you, our church family. You have been such a blessing to us. Listen, I didn't ask Brother John and Brother Alfred to come that Wednesday night. They called. They didn't even call me. They called Brother Tyler. Brother Tyler called me and said, hey, John and Alfred are getting on a plane right now. They're going to come and handle services on Wednesday. I didn't ask them for that, but I understand it was a wonderful service. Out of all of the Sundays of the year that Brother Jerry Locke had free, he's an evangelist, he preaches all over the country, many, many Sundays every year. Out of, out of all of the Sundays of 2018, he had February the 11th open. He was the right man for the right time. Now I could go on and on 
his wife Susan and my dear friend brother Jim Love and his wife Tammy drove from Cincinnati and, and our incredible ministry staff. You understand what I'm saying tonight? Thank God for those times when he puts the right people in our lives at the right time. And as God would have it, here's Paul. And man, he's dejected and he's discouraged and he's down and, 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 and he's weak and he's fearful and he's trembling and he's standing there in Corinth and God knew exactly what he needed. He brought Aquila and Priscilla into his life just when he needed them. And Aquila and Priscilla became lifelong friends of Paul and his ministry. Later in, 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 in this same chapter, we, we read of them helping Paul in Ephesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we learn that Aquila and Priscilla opened their home for the purpose of letting Paul start a church there. And then it says in Romans chapter 16, uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in, in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the, all the churches of the Gentiles. John wrote in 1 John that the sign of genuine love is the fact that we are willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, even as Christ laid down his life for us, Aquila and Priscilla. I'm telling you, they were special people to the Apostle Paul. And God knew that Paul needed them. He knew that Paul was headed to Corinth. And so he had them there waiting to befriend him. And then look at verse 5. Paul also had the opportunity to be reunited with Silas and Timothy. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. If you remember when Paul left Berea, Silas and Timothy stayed, stayed there. They stayed behind. And so Paul goes to Athens by himself, and then he goes to Corinth by himself. But now here they are again in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I think that we can read into verse 5 that by their presence, Paul took heart. And he took courage. And he started to get fired up again. And God's doing a work in his life. One thing that we learn from reading other parts of Paul's letters is that Silas and Timothy not only brought themselves, but they also brought financial help from the churches in Macedonia. You find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So you see what God's doing here? Paul is down and he's dejected and he's defeated and he's weak and he's fearful and he's trembling and, and, and he's at the end of his rope. And, and, and sometimes we find ourselves at the end of our rope and we're weak and we're fearful and we're trembling and we don't know how this is going to work out and we don't know if we can make it and, and we just think we ought to just chunk it, we ought to just quit, we ought to just throw in the towel. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, God brings the right people into our life at the right time. They say the right things, and they do the right things. And little by little, our courage is increased. And we start feeling better. And our outlook is brighter. 
and we get fired up again. Every one of us would agree tonight that Paul was a great Christian. Amen? Paul was a great missionary evangelist. But I'm just wondering tonight how much Paul would have been able to accomplish at this point without God bringing these people into his life. Friends like Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy and the generous believers in Macedonia made it possible for Paul to serve the Lord effectively. His Christian friends, new and old, encouraged him at a time when he needed it the most. So church, let this be a reminder to us, all of us, that we should encourage our friends in the work of the Lord. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, God evidently does not intend us all to be rich or powerful or great, but he does intend us all, all, to be friends. Bear ye one another's burdens and, and fulfill the law of Christ is the way that Paul expressed it in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Humanly speaking, there, there would have been no church, and this is my, my uh, opinion, I'll, I'll preface these remarks like that, but humanly speaking, there would have been no church in Corinth were it not for the devotion and service of many different people. I mean, sometimes we, and I, I do it myself, we, we say, yeah, Paul planted the church in Corinth, but from now on, when we, when we think about the church in Corinth and, and Paul's ministry there in Corinth, let's remember Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy and thank God for those people that he brings into our life at just the right time to say just the right thing to help us get on, amen. Let me ask you tonight, who are those people who have encouraged you along the way? Think about that for a minute. Who are they? What did they do? Did they pray with you? Were they just there to be with you? Did they stand with you? Did they love you back to the Lord? As you think about those people, can I encourage you tonight to take time even before you retire for the evening? Can I just encourage you to reach out to them? Just send them a text, send them an email, give them a call, and just let them know that you appreciate the way that God has used them in your life to encourage you along the way, and that you appreciate it. Can we do that? I think we need to. We need to let people know, I thank God for you. 
And you may not even know it, but you came into my life at the right time on the right day, and you said the right thing, or you did the right thing, and I've never told you how much I appreciate you doing that. I think it would do us good to do that. We find ourselves down and dejected and discouraged. God gives us partners. But God does something else. Look in verse 9. God gives his presence to comfort us. Verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid. Now wait a minute. This is the apostle Paul. This is, a, this is a guy who has stood and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of all kinds of opposition. Why in the world would, would God have to say to Paul, be not afraid? Because he was afraid. The great apostle Paul, he said it to the Corinthians. When I, when I came to you, when I first came to you, I was weak. I came to you in weakness, and he said, I was fearful. Well, yeah. Who wants to be stoned again? Who wants to be whipped again? Who wants to spend any more time in prison? Of course he was afraid. Sometimes we put men like Paul up on this pedestal and we make them almost superhuman. But let's understand tonight that Paul, when he cut his finger, he bred red blood just like we do. Paul got hungry and he got tired and he got lonely and he got discouraged. And there were times when he was afraid. And so God comes to him at just the right time. Says, Paul, don't be afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. Paul, you're not alone. I've not left you. I've not forsaken you. And child of God, can I tell you tonight that God has not left you, that God has not forsaken you, that God knows right where you are right now, and he's with you. And don't let the devil convince you that God doesn't care and that God's nowhere to be found. The Bible says he's as close as the mention of his name. What did, the, what did the Lord say? I will never, what church? Leave thee nor forsake thee. We have the personal promise of the Lord himself that his presence will always be with us. And here's a third thing. God gave Paul and gives us as well. And it's his protection. He gives his protection to encourage us. This is somewhat humorous when you read it. He said, don't be, don't be afraid, Paul. You, you go ahead and speak out, because I'm with you. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. 
There must have been some big boys at Athens. Here's what God was saying, Paul. I just want you to know, son, that there won't be any physical harm that comes to you while you're in Corinth. And you got to know that was a relief to Paul. I mean, there was a point in the ministry of Paul that they took him outside the city and stoned him. They threw rocks at him, and they thought he was dead, and they walked off. He'd been whipped on his bare back with 39 stripes, and he tells us that that happened to him on numerous occasions. So you can imagine... Yeah, he's a little fearful here. He's a little afraid here. What's going to happen to me now? And God said, listen, Paul, nothing's going to happen to you. I'm going to protect you. Now, later on, Paul's going to suffer some more. But God said, right now in this place, I got your back. I got you covered, Paul. I'm going to protect you. The Lord, the Lord was not going to allow anything to harm Paul. And I say he was not going to allow it because we need to be reminded tonight that nothing ever happened to Paul and nothing ever happens to us but that it has not first flowed through the hands of a loving heavenly Father who loves us too much to do us harm. The trials that God permits us to go through are ultimately for our good. That's not to say that there won't be some hurt involved. That's not to say that there won't be some heartache involved. But in the end, understand this tonight, church. And I know so many of you know this, but I hope it's a good reminder for you tonight that in the end, what comes into our life has been allowed there by God for our good and for His glory. You, you know the verses as well as I do. For example, 1 Peter chapter uh, uh, 1, verse 6 and 7, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and uh, honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, By the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. 2 Timothy 3, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Paul is writing to Timothy, his, his young uh, preacher boy in the, in the ministry, and, and he said, You've known my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience, my persecutions, my afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. 
You know what persecutions I endured? But listen, he said, out of them all, out of every single one of them, the Lord delivered me. Even through the worst of trials, even in our darkest days, God promises to see us through. What encouraged Paul during his initial days in Corinth when he was weak and fearful and trembling was number one, the partners that God gave him to support him. Secondly, God's presence to comfort him. And then as we just looked at his promise of protection, those are what encouraged Paul when he was in Corinth. But there's one more thing that I, I want to share with you tonight that God gave Paul and that he gives us. And it's this, he gives us a purpose to motivate us. He gives us partners and his presence and his protection, but he also gives us a purpose to motivate us. You know what I think Paul's greatest motivation was to keep doing what God had called him to do, to continue to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. Here's what I think it was. I think it was the statement that he made in verse 10. Look at it. For I'm with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Look at this, I love it. For I have much people in this city. In this place. Verse 8. If you look back up there, it says that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. But the Lord was telling Paul, listen Paul, listen to me son, you can't quit now because I have many more people in this city who need to hear and believe and be baptized. I love what John Phillips says about the last part of verse 10. At Corinth, Paul had come to a ripened harvest field. There had been very little to reap at Athens. The soil was poor there, for intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense spoiled the harvest. But here at Corinth, in the filth capital of the world, were many hungry hearts. There were lonely people. People disillusioned by pleasure and worldliness. People who had drunk from Satan's broken cisterns and poisoned wells. Desperate people. People who were not only lost, but who knew they were lost. There were sailors, tired of their lives of drunkenness and debauchery. There were broken women, the cast-offs of the temples where sin was their daily bread. There were successful businessmen who, whose money could not buy them everything or could buy them everything but happiness. There were housewives struggling for a decent home life in a city as foul as Sodom. 
There were young people whose ideals had been blighted by the diseased state of the society in which they lived. And were there, there were those who were disgusted alike by heathen religion and Jewish hardness and hypocrisy. And God was saying, Paul, listen to me. You can't quit. You can't be silent. You've got to keep preaching. You've got to keep sharing the gospel. You've still got to talk to people about Jesus because I'm telling you, there are people in this city who still need to be saved. Can I just tell you tonight? Church, we can't quit because there are people in this city who need to be saved. Can I just throw a little encouragement your way tonight? Don't quit working on the buses or serving in the children's ministries. There are still kids who need Jesus. Don't quit loving on middle school and junior high and, and, and high school students. There are far too many who need to be saved, and we might be the only hope they have to salvage their lives from desperate home situations. Don't quit working in the nurseries. I'm telling you, that's the only hope that some parents have of hearing the gospel and grasping it for themselves because they could never do that and you know I'm telling you the truth tonight ladies you can't bring a child into this auditorium and expect to hear the fullness of the gospel message And not only does it interfere with the parents themselves hearing the gospel, but it interferes with those around them who are winking at the kids and waving at the kids and playing with the kids and hugging on the kids. And, and listen, I, I'm just telling you tonight, ladies, we need you. And I know that it's hard, and, and I know that sometimes it just flat wears you out. When that mom or that dad comes down the aisle and gets saved on a Sunday morning because they got to hear the message from start to finish and they get saved, that ought to be a hallelujah. I'm just telling you tonight, church, we can't quit. I can't quit. Well, Mike, you can't quit. But Paul, you can't quit. For the Sid, you can't quit. For the Doug, you can't quit. Listen, we can't quit. Our city needs this church. And they need the gospel. So I'm telling you, God's still got some people out there. They don't know who they are. And we don't know who they are. But here's the really cool part about that. God does. God knows who they are because God knows those are the His. And in case you think there are some people, be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in case you think there are some people in your life 
whether it's at home or, or whether it's in your extended family or whether it's at school or, or, or on your team or, or, or in your office at work or in the shop where you work, just in case you, you think there are some people who are just too far gone and are just too hardened or too whatever, can I just re- remind you real quick of some of the people that Paul reached in Corinth? I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Mm. And such were some of you, Paul said. But you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When God said to Paul, son, listen to me, you can't quit. You've got to keep speaking. I'm with you, and I'm protecting you, and I'm telling you, I've got a lot of people in this city understand this tonight, that some of those people that came to know the Lord because Paul didn't quit, look, some of those people were were fornicators, they were idolaters, they were adulterers, they were effeminate, they abused themselves with mankind, they were thieves, they were covetous, they were drunks, they were revilers, they were extortioners, and they were bound for hell. They were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul said, I can't quit. I just got to keep preaching. And some of those people that came to know the Lord in Corinth were people They didn't even know they needed Jesus. And people that knew Jesus probably looked at and said, there's no way. There's no way these people could ever be saved. Listen, no one's too far gone. Can I get a witness right there? No one's too far gone. No one is too hard-hearted. No one is too sinful. God's purpose of reaching the lost ought to motivate us tonight to get all in and be more determined to reach our city for Christ than we've ever been. I made God a promise this week that I would not let my son's death be in vain. That every time somebody said to me, and God's given me three opportunities this week, as they'd say to me, Mr. Prater or Bill or Pastor Prater, I'm sorry about your son. God's given me the boldness at that moment to say, can I talk to you just a minute? You got to know that you know 
that you know. Because you never know when your time is. And if you're here tonight and you don't know, you don't know that you're saved, then you need to get that settled. You need to swallow your pride and quit worrying about who you're going to offend in your family or who you're going to offend your friends and just give Jesus your life. it really is just a vapor it really is and we never know <laughs> candy i hope you don't mind me saying this this week candy had i took it from from her words that it was a a young adult in her office and uh she talked to him mentioned something to him about life insurance oh well so he's walking out, he put his iPhone in his pocket, and she said, is that an iPhone? Yeah, it's an iPhone 10. She said, do you have that insured? Well, yeah. She said, don't you think you ought to insure your life? And correct me if I'm wrong, Candy, but his words were, ah, it won't happen to me. I just tell you something last Tuesday. When TJ crawled under that truck, he would have never thought that it would happen to him. And it did. And he's gone. But he's in heaven tonight. Not just because I'm a parent and I want him there. No, no. And I know, I know every time somebody dies, somebody says, oh, they're in heaven. Can I just be honest with you tonight? There are some people who die who go to hell. And it doesn't matter how bad their family wants them to be in heaven. They never receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they're in hell. Sixteen years old at Cedar Hills Baptist Youth Camp, T.J. received Christ as his Savior. And I'm glad he did. And if that's not your story tonight, please don't leave here without receiving Christ as your Savior. No, but you, you don't listen, I don't have to understand anything. What you have to understand tonight is that your life is not guaranteed. And without Jesus Christ, you will not go to heaven. And church, I just encourage you tonight. Don't let TJ's death be in vain. Use it as an opportunity. I give you permission. Use it as an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. Talked to a lady this week, and I said, are you ready? And uh, she said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And she said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. She said, I'm, I'm ready, but I'm not prepared. Or she said, I'm prepared, but I'm not ready. Eula's not here tonight. Back when I did your dad's funeral, 
Eula was sitting on the front pew. And I made a statement that morning. I said, Brother Fred was not ready to die. And I thought your mom was just going to faint right there on the spot. And then I said he was prepared, but he wasn't ready. There's not a 35-year-old that I know of who's ready to die. I'm not ready, but I'm prepared. And I want you tonight to be prepared. Don't let an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus pass away.